1: If you've spent any time around policymakers or cutting-edge researchers, then you've probably heard of the term co-design. Co-design creates knowledge through partnerships and participation between community partners and researchers. Co-design creates space for community leaders to bring expertise drawn from lived experience to the centre of the research process. Some co-design is amazing. And some is less so. So we thought it was worth getting a clear understanding of what gold-plated, high-quality, co-designed, co-produced research looks like. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Lizzie Pellicchino. Lizzie is a professor at University College London, having built a career focused on autistic research in Australia and in the United Kingdom. She has learnt the power of working with communities and researchers with lived experience to design research questions, undertake research, and analyse data. She has found that co design not only produces the best research, but it produces powerful, enduring connection with community. This episode is an expose into a practice that attracts a lot of talk, but is not well understood. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Changemakers also runs an organizing school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Welcome to Changemakers, Lizzie. Thank you so much, Amanda, for inviting me to be part of your podcast. It is my delight to have you here as part of this podcast. And if only you were still in Australia and would be having this conversation face to face, but no, you're in the UK, making the world over there a better place. And we're still delighted to be in conversation. So my first uh, question to you is, you know, you do many things and you've had a long career as an academic, but. Very much, I know. I see you as a change maker because of the work that you do. What do you do in your work as a as a researcher that causes change in the world?
0: Good question. I, I, I think about change in two ways. I think first of all, I want to help facilitate and lead new kinds of research on autism, so research that is driven in part by autistic people themselves and their allies and which directly maps on to the realities of people's everyday lives. And second, I want to kind of use the amazing facilities of some of the world's best universities to help build community for autistic people, and especially autistic self-advocates. Helping people to meet each other, get the training and support they might need to lead change for themselves.
1: I think that's really interesting that you you engage in co-design, co-produce, co-created research with a particular community of people, in this case autistic people, right, and you've done so for most of your career. I'm interested in why you chose that path. That doesn't seem to necessarily be an easy path or a well-trodden path. To go back as far as you feel is necessary and can you explain to us some of the reasons why or the experiences that you had that grounded this kind of approach uh, to research for you?
0: Well, going back quite early on, you know, I, I was brought up on a dairy farm in Perth or actually miles from Perth in Western Australia. I was the eldest daughter of an Italian-Irish family and I was the first person to go to university. So I didn't really, I don't think I ever, understood, you know, even what an academic was, even during my undergraduate kind of degree. So I, I kind of think about why autism is more important for me than why, you know, why I've become an academic and a researcher in, in, in this way. I don't think I'd ever had become an academic had I not fallen in love with autism research. And st- that, you know, that actually started right back when I was a student studying psychology as an undergraduate. And it was when I was a 19-year-old that I found, um, found myself working with a beautiful little four-year-old boy who had an autism diagnosis and his family. And I'd go to his house once a week um, just for one afternoon and each of those afternoons we'd kind of sit around at the wooden kitchen table in their house in a suburb in, in Perth and slowly, bit by bit, I'd kind of help him with his language skills or I'd throw a ball to help him with his, you know, motor skills. And it was those interactions with that family and with and with that little boy that really changed my life. So I was just totally inspired by him and his mum and his dad and his sister. They had some really, really trying times, particularly around toileting issues, but they really taught me a lot about about support, about resilience, about empathy, but particularly about the everyday realities of autism and being autistic, which was at the time, oh, so different from what I was reading in the journals and and the textbooks. And working with that family really spurred my interest and desire to pursue an academic career so that I could grasp you know, what autism is and how those people who are autistic or live with those who are autistic can lead the very best lives possible.
1: And so, and so, and so the, your interest and your passion was the experience of this family and particularly this beautiful boy. And you decided that research could be the space in which you enacted that. But how did you come across a form of research that allowed you to, I don't know, to challenge what you were reading in the journals that seemed to disregard all this all this experience.
0: Yeah, so at the start, I was I think I was trained as quite a a very conventional autism scientist. In fact I was I think I was Uber conventional, but um, you know, totally committed to the methods and approaches I'd learnt from, you know, some amazing academics at University of Western Australia. But that began to change when I moved to the UK and started working with groups that were much more attuned to the ways in which research you know impacts on the real world and I think it really changed when I moved to the Institute of Education at University College London and I ran one of the world's first conferences on the ethics of autism research with proper representation from the autistic community itself so for that conference which was 12 years 12 years ago now we um, brought together scientists of all kinds with autistic activists philosophers clinicians family members And the broader public to talk about the kind of ethical foundations of autism science. So the kind of questions we were asking at that at that point were, what are we doing trying to find the genes for autism, and are we looking for a cure? You know, quite hardcore questions. Um, And the talks from you know a range of different people were really you know thought provoking, honest, engaging, and the discussions that we had with you know the rest of the audience and particularly the broader public were really lively. And also sometimes quite raw. In fact, I don't think I've ever been in a space, an academic space with with so much energy, but it was... One of the most, uh, one of the talks that was given by my wonderful friend and collaborator, Wen Lawson, who I know you've interviewed before. Who has
1: been on this podcast earlier this
0: year. The people who. (laughs) His, I mean, it was his talk that struck, really struck me, I think. He talked about the notion of interdependence. So not independence, but interdependence, and he said something like that day. So I'm paraphrasing, but you know, throughout the generations, society has consisted of, needy, of people needing one another, so depending on one another, and that it's not shameful to need other people in one's life. You know, some people need more support and assistance than other people, um, but we all need each other, and I think that notion of that we're all dependent on each other. Um, sometimes in our lives more than others and some people, you know, more than others, that is that we're interdependent, should not have been a revelation to me at all, but it really was. And I think that's partly because it contrasted so sharply what was in the autism research literature at the time, and in fact still is, that is, a, you know, that a good life for an autistic person is one in which they're able to live and function independently. That conference and particularly when's talk really made me start to question the assumptions underpinning autism research, which made it seem, you know, either explicitly or implicitly like we knew what a good autistic life should be. And that conference that day made it very clear to me that we did not know that. Yeah. So that's why I think where it, it kind of my, I guess my, Views kind of shifted, and I really started to question um, the kind of standard, conventional um, autism science, and whether it w- was really making an impact on the on the people for whom it should serve.
1: And what strikes me as fascinating is not only was this agitation around that we that actually life is interdependent. I also hear, like, it it was also an agitation in some respects to say that our research is interdependent, that, that, that some perfect little researcher sitting in a corner on their own can't possibly produce the right the right research for a community and and so tell us about how you you encountered and and sought to apply this idea of interdependence or relationships co-production co-design all these fancy phrases to to your research working with the autistic community
0: yeah so that's a great way of putting it amanda so that really started, I think, when um, we did a study, it was in London, called A Future Made Together, <laughs> Together, and it was about looking at the kind of state of research in the UK at the time, state of autism research, so what had been, how much had been funded in terms of British autism research, and, and particularly what the money had been spent on, what kind of research. And what we found was that most of the, um, the funds and, 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 and or the research that attracted the most funds was going towards research to understand the underlying biology and causes of autism and very little was going on research, you know, designed to help support autistic people in terms of educational services and other types of supports. And as part of that project, we also did a consultation with community members, so autistic people, their family members, professionals who work with autistic people and their, and also researchers. And we asked them what they thought about British research at the time and also what they might prioritise um, in the future. And, you know, they were pretty impressed with what was going on in British autism research, but they, they really didn't think that it had any impact on their lives on their everyday lives and what they wanted to see was you know that there was this massive disconnect between you know what was being researched and what they wanted to see research they wanted research that you know that was going to have a more immediate effect or you know that was going to actually have some practical impact on their on their lives and so what we what we you know our one way I guess to kind of bridge the gap between what was being researched and what people want to be researched is actually to get people involved in the research process. And so it's really since that study that I've been very committed to try and advocate, but also in my own research, committed to doing research that involves community members as partners in the research process. Because I think it does get, in doing so, we do get research that is more relevant to people's everyday lives, is more tailored to to their needs and wants, and is also more consistent with their values.
1: So let's turn to this question of of how to understand this kind of com, you know uh, community led research, this this partnership that you're talking about. So for anyone who, who's listening, if they've ever been connected to a public service policy making process, or they've ever in, encountered research uh, discussion at the universities, they might have heard the term co design co-design is like a zeitgeist phrase. Everyone wants it. It sounds beautiful. And and everyone is in It's sort of that sort of fun, curious language. Alongside phrases like that, there are other words like co-production and co-creation and so forth. But starting with that idea of co-design, you know, it's all the rage. Can you tell us what it means, Lizzie? I think there is actually so much that calls itself
0: co-design and co-production, but most of it I think is still pretty light touch. So for me, co-design or co-production, what I call participatory research is where community members are involved in the research process with, you know, academics. In my case, kind of usually non-autistic academics. And so I'm interested in the, in, in, in the fundamental shift in the nature of that relationship between kind of academics and non-academics in a way that I think can change our understanding of, in my case, you know, autism. And just to give you an example of how that might kind of play out in um, practice. We recently did a study uh, which was called the hidden history study and in that study we gathered the untold histories of late diagnosed Autistic people who themselves were now in mid to late adulthood. So, for those of you who don't know that, um, you know, most or well, lots of autistic people get diagnosed in in early childhood. Some, you know, in late childhood, and then you know, and some now in adulthood. The people that we spoke to were were very un, were underrepresented in autism research, and they essentially have. You know, grown up at a time when autism was virtually unknown. So you know, psychiat- psychiatrists weren't diagnosing it because it was kind of a new thing and and, and and kind of unheard of. And we were interested in what it was like to you know what their lives were like growing up without a diagnosis, and also what it was. Like to receive a diagnosis later on in their lives, often very late. Um, we had a also we had a couple of seventy two year olds um, who were in, in our study. So basically, we to to look at this in my view properly. We um, we put together a team of non autistic academics, autistic researchers, and community members, as well as an autistic advisory group who oversaw everything. And all of those people actively participated in making decisions about the research including from you know right from getting the funding to analyzing the data you know to make sure we were interpreting it properly and disseminating the findings. For me that was a deep and sustained effort at genuine co-production in autism research. The other novel thing about that project is we used an oral history approach where we essentially record the recollections of people and groups um in order to kind of situate their stories in in a particular time and place in history, and what was amazing about um, our our studies was we had autistic community members who we trained to actually do the oral history interviews with our participants and you know we learned so much from this project that I won't talk about here, but um what we learned most of all was that was really the importance for autistic people of working with autistic researchers in genuine co-production. So, you know, the input that our, or the impact that our autistic researchers had on our research, it, you know, meant that we were asking the right questions, that the research was really respectful of our participants who'd really, who'd often had very harrowing lives and, you know, the stories that they were telling were very hard for them to tell. We had autistic interviewers who were were also late diagnosed and who'd gone through similar experiences. So our whole setup really was very supportive of our autistic participants. And being able to talk to an autistic interviewer brought, you know, extraordinary rewards so I think one participant, we, we did a bit of an evaluation of our kind of co-production processes and one of the participants said to me, you know, we were talking about how when she was talking to the autistic interviewer, it, it, it felt like a really safe space, you know, a space where she could be authentic, she didn't have to mask or pretend not to be autistic, she could just be herself. And she essentially she knew that, like, the autistic interviewer would, would get it and get her. That meant, critically, that our autistic, you know, those interactions with our autistic researchers meant that people, our, our participants, shared insights that they might not have shared otherwise with a non-autistic researcher, or, you know, at least a researcher who was not kind of on their way of the length. Put simply, that, you know, the it, it basically meant they were telling us things they might not have told us. So... It's a, basically we got we got better, more meaningful research through our kind of participatory or co-production
1: processes. And it's such a complicated co-production. Like sometimes I think that when people think of co-design, they think of academics who wear one hat, their research expertise, and then there's people with lived experience who are the community participants, and they've got lived experience expertise. And that these two worlds are separate, and and co-design is about bouncing them together. But what I'm hearing in your story is that actually there's a lot of, we could be far more sophisticated when we think about how we produce research with communities. And we can think about the fact that actually plenty of researchers, if we open up the world of research to the diversity of the world, rather than just think of it as an ivory tower that's separate from, say, individuals who, who also have autism, that actually we can blur lines of lived experience, expertise. And that, and if we do so, we can create sp- rich spaces of trust, spaces where people feel like they want to open up because actually this piece of research is resonating with them, is connecting to them. They actually feel like it will benefit them. It's in their interests as well as being a safe place for them to invest a lot more. And the product is, is that actually produce better research because actually with people are more able to ask the right questions and also are more able to create a safe space where they can listen, that actually we just learn more in those spaces. It's so huge. It's so huge. And let's talk, we're gonna talk a little bit more about some of this, this process stuff as we go through. But one of the things I wanna lift up, you know, you talk about interdependence and you talk about these different all these different groups you know you've got a series of different advisory committees and uh, lived experience researchers as well as other researchers all working together on all the questions to, from raising the money to the to designing the research questions to conducting the research right the centre of that process is you know i could hear it in in what you're describing is the idea of relationships you know, it's a relationship rich research process so i'm wondering if you could talk to talk to us about you know, what is the role of relationships in this kind of collaborative research? How how is it important? And, and, you know, feel free to be, you know, tell us another story or be specific about, you know, what does it practically mean to be deeply reliant on relationships when you're doing research like this?
0: Yeah. So this kind of research is well, I think all research is is about relationships, even the collaborations with other, you know, academics. I think they rely on on really, really good relationships, trusting relationships. But I think this is even more important when um, with co-produced or participatory research, and that that I think is actually one of the most exciting parts of my job is working with people that I really, really like and respect um, and and want to learn from. So, in that sense, kind of relationship building comes naturally and the people I've got to work with in, in Sydney over the last few years are my old friends and colleagues back in London you know I, I I really cherish those relationships but I think it's if I reflect on kind of what it is about those relationships and how how to get those relationships right it is about kind of sitting back and listening Rather than kind of butting in, so really listening, being willing to work on on other people's timetables rather than sticking to all, you know the all the time to your own, which can be difficult as an academic because you you know you've got um, you're used to working often on your own, but it's also trying to build people's confidence, particularly in new skills around research and and to give them an ability to trust you and and the process that you're taking them through to also to help them draw out you know out their skills it's about building an atmosphere of kind of mutual support i think a kind of team spirit where everyone feels that they can rely on everyone else to give you an example the in the hidden histories project that i talked about the one of my favorite things was once we um, finished doing all the interviews, we were here to analyse the interviews. So we, um, once the interviews, the oral histories were transcribed, we basically met with the core team. So the core team consisted of three autistic researchers and two non-autistic researchers. And we basically met every Monday afternoon, I think for about six months. And it was... Like I'm sure, Amanda, you know that there are meetings that you turn up to and that you don't really want to go to. Yeah, <laughs> but oh, really university! <laughs> all meetings are brilliantly run. <laughs> 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 don't really want to be out but this was not one of those meetings I loved those meetings they were um you know so what we would do is, is we'd, we'd kind of we'd have one or two transcripts that we would read or people's interviews would read and we would discuss them but we would also get to see each other and so it was then it was it was such uh I don't know there was such a space it was it was kind of engendering a space where people could talk about you know what was going on in their lives as well as like you know obviously the issues that with our oral history interviews, but you know, developing that kind of team spirit and 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 fostering kind of those all the kind of necessary part. Facets of, re- of really good relationships, and you know, we became friends, which is the which is the best bit about doing this kind of research. So I think it, it, it's relationships are really important, and it's being able to it's being willing, I think, to kind of to maintain, keep everything held together, and maintain that space so that everyone else in the in the team can help. You know, can bring their very best to a project.
1: Yeah. So you know, in a meeting like that, you're making time to do the work and making time to invest in the relationships at the same, in the same space. Like, you not. it's not that transactional sort of, right, we've got to get everything done. And that that's the only objective to nurture powerful relationships in this work. And, you know, I'm sure in other work too, but in, particularly in this work, it's really essential to be able to make time for that, for people to be able to talk about, you know, the things that are going on in their life that, that that may be loosely held but somewhat connected to their public work because actually that's what we need to to maintain relationships. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And then the other thing I heard, like just to say, is this is te- like a lot of mentoring and teaching. Like what what yeah. sounds like is, especially if you're working with a bunch of, if you've made a decision as a researcher, say you're a neurotypical researcher like you, to make a decision to work with people who are neurodivergent, that you have also in seeking to to make those relationships powerful, partly by seeing them as, as mentoring relationships where, where you're teaching research skills, but also you're learning from your researchers about lived experience. So there's just this rich role of mentoring and teaching and learning that's happening across those relationships as well. That's what it sounds like from your description.
0: Yeah. It's listening to and learning from each other. I think that's the,
1: yeah, that's really key. And so it takes that I guess you've got to be a person who recognizes that you're there to learn as well as you're there to teach. And that's, that there's a temperament that comes with that, that, that is kind of a precondition to being able to really do this work well. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So let's talk, I, I want to sort of investigate this question of power, right? So co-design sounds beautiful, co-production, oh, we're all working together. It's all Nirvana and perfect. But actually, we live in a world that's full of power and hierarchy. We know that plenty of academics are bestowed status that makes them believe that they're powerful that, and that actually comes with resources of power. Like what you've described, you're working in these big institutions that do have resources and the capacity to exercise power. And you, they can exercise that power for good, right? Power is not all bad. Power is the ability to act. But I want to talk to you about how power plays out in these in this co-production, uh, co-design process, right? So, you, you're neurotypical senior academic working with aut- individuals from the autistic community, you can see, you know, you don't have to be a, a genius to identify that that there could be power dynamics that exist within that space. In all these spaces. It, Like how people come, whether they come as individuals, whether they come as organisations, whether they have pre-existing relationships, whether the the academic is convening the people for the first time. Can you talk to us about how you seek to understand the process of power in a in co-produced participatory research, and how you seek to guard against its more negative sides? You know that we know power can 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 move to a power over space. How do you avoid that? How do you seek to to not have that happen in this research process?
0: Yeah, so for me, as you said, Amanda, that co-design, co-production, participatory research is all about power, about sharing power in the decision-making process around research between researchers and community members. So those participatory approaches you know seek to value equally the knowledge of an expertise and experience of each individual who participates in 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 the, in the research process and as researchers as a researcher that means that you know I have to address the power differentials within my work and that means trying to make sure that everyone gets to have their say nobody's left out that they can contribute in a way that they feel is most comfortable to them that's particularly important for autistic um community members because they might they might need to communicate in non-traditional ways like perhaps using text forms or they might prefer email to like you know share their views or whatever so going to be really aware and make sure that the you know the way that we're they can contribute is accessible to them. And critically to make sure that what they're saying is actually heard and that it has an impact on the research itself so it changes the you know nature of what we're doing. I don't think sharing power is very straightforward thing to do and I think I'm sorry to say that a, a lot of academics I think can be a bit greedy about holding on to power and influence often you know understandably because they've had to to battle very hard for it you know to forge a career they have to you know publish papers and get grants and and escape the shadows of their super, your supervisor but as a result I think they're not very good with sharing power or or building kind of new collective power with others particularly community members so I've seen academics you know try to push all kinds of people out of the way to dilute their influence. And so often autistic researchers, autistic self-advocates, autistic community members, lay community members, are often squeezed out of kind of key decisions around research, even by those who claim to value their perspectives or to say that they're interested in doing co-design or co-production, which, you know, is, is I think... <laughs> It can be frustrating because I think we just have so much to learn from people who have experiential expertise. So, and and as as you said, like it is about valuing community members' distinctive experiential expertise. In my case, autistic people's experiential expertise. You know, so researchers have expertise in designing and implementing research, and and parents of autistic children have of uh, expertise with living and caring for someone who's autistic, and autistic people have expertise of, of being autistic. You know, of, of experience of being autistic and some people have like you know multiple roles and have lots of different expertise but I think it starts with having that deep appreciation for those different sorts of expertise and being willing to listen to and learn from that expertise that kind of you know that allows kind of like new and exciting dynamics to develop.
1: I love that you say that that can be seen when voice has an impact on the research, right? Like it's the difference between actual co-production and consultation, where you you know where consultation where you where you might run around and get people to write things on a post-it note and it's left in the past because the plan is already set. In this process, you can tell you actually are making the work. Happen as you go along because your knowledge and lived experience and expertise is, is bumping up against research expertise and actually changing the content of the research as it goes. It's quite quite a that's to me that's a really clear measure. If, if 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 you're a person designing policy or you're a researcher and you're not being changed by the process, then you're probably not engaged in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, I think that a lot of our listeners will be going, "Oh, this is so helpful." to be able to hear someone actually explain a, pr- a process of actually doing a piece of co-design research concretely, like with the different examples that you've laid out. And I'm wondering for for the last question, like for, for the last reflection, if, you know, you're an experienced, still very young, but very experienced co-design researcher now. If there were some things that you've learned that you now know that you'd known at the beginning of your career, or as you began this kind of uh, more more collaborative participatory research, is there a key sort of insight that you wish you could whisper into the ear of younger you, you know, like you could whisper into the ear of people who are interested in co-design on this call and, and help them, you know, in, in in their sort of in, in enacting this kind of work,
0: I think it's. I would think I would have said to myself, um, it's all about you know, willing to to let go, to let go of your assumptions that you know best, or that you have insights that others don't, or that you know your training makes you cleverer than anyone else. I think you need to let go of those kind of assumptions and be willing to to listen to and learn from people who have have other experience and other expertise and then to connect with others so those who have direct experience of of what you're in, what you're interested in or whose lives have just given them a kind of a view that no one else will have and then it's about working together you know trying to forge and you know and build those build those really trusting strong relationships with each other where you can do research and change and change the nature of that research that so that it has a real impact on on the people that it's you know you can meant to
1: awesome okay people so this is how we do it properly rather than how we do it sort of you know <laughs> superficially thank you lizzie thank you for sharing your wisdom about how to do this kind of uh, of kind of co-produced research that hopefully becomes more and more prevalent within how we produce public policy going forward
0: thank you so much Amanda, for having me
1: our pleasure Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. And this is series six, so there's plenty to look at in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walkerer. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy-lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organizing school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.